Please turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 16, continuing our series of studies in the gospel according to Luke. And this morning we come to chapter 16, beginning in verse 19 and reading through the end of the chapter. Luke 16, verses 19 through 31. Please give your full attention to the inerrant, infallible, awesomely powerful word of God. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let him hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Well, the big news of this past week was that Captain Kirk went into space. In case you missed it, William Shatner, the 90-year-old actor who played Captain Kirk in the original Star Trek series from the 1960s, flew in a spaceship 10 minutes, a 10-minute trip into space and back. And if you haven't seen the video of his comments, he, he, they landed in the wilderness, they pulled him out of that capsule, and it was one of the most genuine, authentic, heartfelt reactions to anything I've ever heard, if you haven't seen that video. He was blown away by the experience. Let me just give you a taste of some of the comments he made. I wrote them down from the transcript. He's talking to Jeff Bezos, who was the Amazon guy who financed and uh, planned the whole thing. And he says to Jeff, he says, what you have given me is the most profound experience that I can imagine. I'm so filled with emotion about what just happened. It's extraordinary, it's extraordinary. I hope I never recover from this. I hope that I can maintain what I feel right now. I don't want to lose it. It's so, so much larger than me, than life even. And it hasn't gotten anything to do with this little green planet. It has to do with the enormity and the weakness and the suddenness 
of life and death. I don't know. I can't even begin to express. What I would love to do is to communicate as much as possible the jeopardy. The moment you see the vulnerability of everything. It's so small. This air which is keeping us alive is thinner than your skin. It's a sliver. It's immeasurably small when you think in terms of the universe. It's negligible, this air. It sustains our life. It's so thin. This is life. That's death, he said. And in an instant, that's death. That's what I saw. This experience is something unbelievable. Rather inarticulate, but from the heart, he was both thrilled and terrified by what he saw. Just by going barely over the boundary into space and coming right back. He was overwhelmed with how small this planet is in the context of this universe. But more than that, he was blown away by how fragile life on earth is. How thin is that atmosphere that's keeping us alive? He went into space where there's only death. Reminds me of what David wrote in Psalm 8. He said to God, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? Or else I think of King Solomon. King Solomon wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. And in that book, his main point is that you cannot find meaning and purpose under the sun. In this atmosphere, on this little tiny planet, in this huge universe, you will not find meaning and purpose on this planet, in this life, under the sun. Because vanity, vanity, all is vanity under the sun, he says. Why is that true? Why can't you find meaning and purpose in this life? His answer is in chapter 3, verse 20, where he says, all are from dust and to dust all return. Or in chapter 7, verse 2, he says, it is better to go to the house of mourning, the place of a funeral. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. We don't think about death enough. Matter of fact, I think we spend an awful lot of effort avoiding thinking about death. It's interesting that William Shatner, with that rare opportunity to escape the atmosphere and look at space, look back at the earth, that's what was on his mind. Death, how fragile this earthly life is. The scriptural image for that is we are like the grass of the field. We're here today and gone tomorrow. Well, that brings us to Luke chapter 16 and this story that Jesus told. One commentator pointed out to me something that I never realized, that this is the only place, this story that Jesus tells is the only place in the entire Bible that records for us the reaction of an unbeliever after death. 
There is nowhere else in scripture that we are, it's, that a picture or an image is given to us of how an unbeliever responds to his state of being after death. It's a parable. There's some debate about that amongst biblical scholars, but vast majority think, yes, it's a parable because there are some elements of the story that are given to us in earthly imagery, things that we can understand in terms of this life, but wouldn't actually fit reality for those souls that have died and are in between the, the first coming of Christ and second coming of Christ before Christ comes again to bring everything to completion. We know that souls go either to heaven or hell. Some of the imagery is just using earthly imagery to portray that. For instance, it talks about there being this wide chasm between heaven and hell. That's to communicate an idea, not that there's literally a grand canyon between heaven and hell. And certainly, we don't expect that people in hell can communicate with people in heaven or people in heaven can communicate with people in hell. And just to confirm that it is a story with imagery and not meant to be taken as historical event, uh, it talks about the man in hell wanting to have uh, water placed on his tongue uh, there are, you know, for Lazarus to take his finger and put water on his tongue. There are no fingers, there are no tongues in the intermediate state when people die today. We are souls without our bodies until Christ comes again. So it's using imagery, it's a parable in that sense, but it's teaching literal truths about life after death. One commentator said, and I like what he said, he said, not everything in the parable should be taken literally, but everything should be taken seriously. It's been pointed out that this parable fits into kind of a theme in the gospel according to Luke. So many different places, Jesus either directly or indirectly teaches this idea that there's gonna be a great reversal after death. That those who are rich in this life will be poor and those who are poor will be rich. That those who are last will be first and those who are first will be last. Those who are great will be the least and those who are least will be great. That reversal is talked about. And actually, there is one place in this parable that says essentially that about the rich man in hell. It says where Abraham addresses him in verse 25 and he says, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in manner bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And again, you have that theme. The last shall be first, the first shall be last, the rich shall be poor, the poor shall be rich. But I want you to know that that's not the main point of this parable. And you don't go to hell by being rich and you don't go to heaven by being poor. You need to understand that reversal in terms of the gospel. What this parable teaches at its bottom line is that death is coming to all of us. And when that moment of death comes and we don't know when it's gonna come, we're going to be revealed for who we are. Our hope will be revealed for what it is. Our faith will be revealed for what it is. No more pretense. And that's, you know, Jesus is still talking to the Pharisees through the last couple of chapters. The Pharisees are either been who he's been directly addressing or they've been in the background and everything he's teaching has an application directly to the Pharisees. Like the rich man in this story, it says back in verse 14 that the Pharisees were lovers of money. 
And since the Pharisees were lovers of money, Jesus tells them this story about a rich man and his future. Back in verse 15, Jesus refers to the Pharisees as those who justify themselves before men. But he goes on to say, what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. He wants the Pharisees to see themselves in this rich man, this lover of money. It's interesting because the Pharisees were seen as the most pious, the most religious among the Jewish people. They were seen as the teachers, the leaders of the Jewish people. And yet Jesus is exposing their hearts here and saying, no, you live for this life. You live for money. You live for the blessings that money can give you. You have rejected the true God of the scriptures. The Pharisees have failed to make friends with their unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive them into eternal dwellings. That was the lesson of last week's parable on the unjust steward. It's interesting because the Pharisees believed in life after death. Not all the Jewish leadership did. The big division among the Jewish leadership in the days of Jesus was between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Sadducees didn't believe in life after death. They didn't believe in a resurrection. But the Pharisees did. And that just goes to show that right doctrine won't save you. Right doctrine is essential to faith, but right doctrine by itself will not save you without faith. They believed in life after death, but what Jesus is trying to communicate to them in this parable is that they were not ready for life after death. And they better hope that life after death was delayed in order that they might find grace. So what do we learn at the point of death? Anyone in this room could die within the next 30 seconds. What do we learn at that moment of death? What's Jesus teaching here? First of all, at the moment of death, you're going to find out whether God knows you or not. I don't mean knows about you, but you're going to find out at that point of death whether God knows you personally, intimately, as one of his children. Now, when this rich man was alive, the Pharisees and people like them and other rich people, they took it as a sign of God's blessing. This was a Jewish man. He was probably raised in a religious home. We get that sense from later in the story. He would have probably taken it as God's blessing. God must be happy with him because, boy, he's really rich. He lived a life of extreme luxury. It says he was clothed in purple. I hate purple myself. I don't wear it. But back then, back then, to be clothed in purple was a huge status symbol because purple dye could only be uh, obtained by extracting it from shellfish. And it was a, an expensive process. And you needed that dye to make purple cloth. And that's why purple robes or purple cloth, that was always a sign of royalty. Why? Because few people outside of royalty could afford it. And yet this rich man clothed himself in purple. That's how rich he was. Lydia, remember in Acts chapter 16, it says that Lydia, who became a believer in Christ, she was a seller of purple. She was a seller of the most expensive kind of fabric, and therefore she was very wealthy. It also says that he was dressed in fine linen. See, the outward robe, the robe that everybody would see as he walked down the street was this glorious purple, but underneath the undergarment was made of fine linen. 
And in that day, you only got fine linen if it was imported from Egypt. Again, extremely expensive. It says he feasted sumptuously every day. And the, word, the, the wording in the original language indicates it wasn't just that he ate the finest, best food and drink, that drank the best drink, but so the word sumptuously actually ties in the idea of, of, of merriment, partying. That was his lifestyle. Now, let me be clear. The Bible does not condemn wealth. You are not inherently outside of the kingdom if you're wealthy. As I've said before, I'm praise God that he raises up godly, humble people and gives them wealth so that they can use it for the glory of God and for the kingdom. But what the Bible does consistently teach is that wealth is a test. Wealth is often a burden because it tests your heart. How, as we saw last week, how you handle your earthly wealth shows whether your treasure is in heaven or your treasure is on earth. And money, the possession of wealth, is such a stumbling block to sinners, prideful, self-centered people like you and me. That's why the writer in Proverbs says, Lord, give me neither riches nor poverty. Give me neither riches that I might forget you and give me, no, don't give me poverty that I might dishonor you by stealing to live. Give me enough, he says, for my daily bread. Because he understood that wealth is a, a burden. It's a temptation. It's a test for your heart. And this man failed to test miserably. He reveled in his wealth. He lived for his wealth. He lived for the pleasures that his money could provide for him. The other man was named Lazarus. And Lazarus was a beggar. beggar a beggar who daily was seated at the gate. And the word gate there is actually an a, a word that meant a very ornate gate. The gate you'd see at a palace. It was the rich man's gate. And Lazarus would sit there and he would beg, beg for scraps from the, from the rich man's table. In other words, after he'd had one of his parties and people had eaten, they'd sweep up all the leftover scraps and he hoped that maybe they might share some of those with him that he could live. This isn't the brother of Mary and Martha, if you know that story. This is a parable, remember. Uh, this, is, uh, his, this is a different Lazarus. Lazarus is a very common name, kind of like John in the first century, in this century. He was laid at the gate, it says. That indicates that he didn't walk to the rich man's gate. He was laid there by others. He had to be carried there, which meant undoubtedly he was paralyzed or lame in some way says he also suffered from some kind of disease that left his body covered with open sores. And then it says that dogs came to lick those sores. One commentator I read said that uh, it was a sign of how degraded of a condition he was in that dogs would come and lick his sores like the dogs were somehow insulting him or putting him down in some way. But I have a dog. And when I get cut, my dog will come up and lick the cut which is kind of annoying, but he's actually not insulting me by doing that. He's saying, you're part of my pack. You're part of my dog family. I suppose it is insulting that way, but <laughs> he doesn't intend it that way. 
He intends to say, I care about you. You're part of my family. Dogs lick their own sores and lick the sores of other dogs in their pack because they want to clean the wound and they want to facilitate healing. I think the point is only the dogs, and you got to understand first century Jews thought dogs were dirty, not the cute little pets we have in our house. They consider street dogs as dirty. But those are the only creatures on the planet that cared about this poor man, Lazarus. But this is where the turning point happens in the story. What's the turning point? Death. Death happened to both. You get to sense that on the same day, Lazarus died and the rich man died. Lazarus may have died of this long-term disease that had wrecked his body. The rich man might have died because he choked on a bone in his feast. Who knows? But they both died. And their state of being becomes exactly opposite to what it was during their earthly life. Now, again, that's not the point of the story. That's an observation you make, is that the he who is rich in this life becomes destitute in the afterlife, and he who is destitute in this life becomes wealthy beyond imagination in the next life. That's just an observation. But that's not why Lazarus went to heaven. Lazarus didn't go to heaven because he was poor. Lazarus didn't go to heaven because he suffered. Lazarus went to heaven, we know, from the rest of the teaching of Scripture and even in the context of this story, because he put faith in the Lord and the Lord's promises. There's a hint of this in his name. I mentioned that the beggar's name was Lazarus. He wasn't the Lazarus who was Mary and Martha's brother, but Jesus calls him Lazarus. Now, this is a parable. That means Jesus picked the name. But you know what's really interesting? Is that there is no other parable that Jesus told where he names a character, any character. This is the only character that Jesus ever named in a parable that he told. To me, that says there's significance to it. So what's the significance of calling him Lazarus? The word Lazarus is, comes from a Greek name, but that Greek name is a translation of the Hebrew name Eliezer. And the Hebrew name Eliezer mean God has helped me. That's what the name Lazarus means. God has helped me. Jesus knew that his Jewish audience would know what the name meant. Kind of an ironic name for a beggar named Lazarus in the condition that he was in, wasn't it? Where was God in all of his suffering? But Lazarus did not complain to God. Lazarus trusted in God. When I was studying this passage, I, in my daily devotions, came to Psalm 31. And as I was reading it, I thought, you know, one of the things I love about the Psalter is that the Psalter is given to us to get a, a, a peek at the inter, internal life of a believer. How a believer thinks, how a believer feels. That's what the Psalms will portray to us as it, as it is given to us in prayers and songs of praise. You get to see the internal struggles, both good and bad, of a believer. And Psalm 31, I think, describes well what I think was the heart of Lazarus, the beggar. Listen to what it says, verses 9 and 10. This is David praying. He says, Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. 
My eye is wasted from grief, my soul and my body also. For my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. But then he says in verse 14, but I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. And then he concludes the psalm by saying, love the Lord, all you his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. I believe that was the faith of Lazarus, the one who claimed that God had helped him even in his suffering. He will hold me fast. Lazarus was unknown and unloved in this world, but his name was written in the book of life and he was known by the Father and was brought to the Father at the point of death. The rich man didn't get a name. I think Jesus means to signify by that that you can have the most honored, most glorified name in this life that men can possibly give you. But in the afterlife, it'll mean nothing if you're not known by God. That unbelieving rich man might have had his name in lights. He might have had his name on buildings. But in the afterlife, he was nameless, forlorn, forlorn and forsaken, lost in isolation, in eternal torment. In Luke chapter 6, verses 24 and 25, Jesus said, But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Now again, that's not to all rich people, but that's to all rich people who trust in their riches. That's the consistent message of Scripture. If you trust in your riches, if you trust in your honor in this life, if you trust in the pleasures of this life, you will have nothing in the life to come. So, death, at the moment of death, it will be revealed whether you're known by God or not. Secondly, death will reveal your eternal destiny. You're locked in eternal destiny. In the story, as the story goes, Lazarus is given a, an angelic escort into the great banquet that we've talked about that is portrayed as eternal life in the presence of God. In Psalm 116, verse 15, it says, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Lazarus was known by God. Lazarus was a true child of God by faith, and he receives this honored escort of angelic beings into the great feast of the eternal kingdom. It's another confirmation. It says that he went to be at the side of Abraham. The old King James said the bosom of Abraham. That word makes us uncomfortable these days. We don't even use it. But it's, it's really, that's what it means, to, to be leaning against the chest. That's what the picture is. To be at the side of Abraham is to be leaning on the chest like a child to a father. It's another confirmation that Lazarus had trusted in the Lord during his suffering in this lifetime is because it says that he went to Abraham's side. Why Abraham? Why not God? Why, why Abraham? Well, in Romans chapter 4, Paul says that Abraham was the father of all those who believe. So Lazarus was the recipient of all the great covenant promises given to our spiritual father, Abraham. The beggar who pleaded for food out of the garbage at the rich man's gate is now feasting 
with the people of God and the angels in heaven at the great eternal banquet of the kingdom of God. But the rich man, he immediately went to hell and was in torment, it says. No matter what some cults may teach, unbelievers are not annihilated and go out of existence when they die. They don't sleep until judgment day even. The Bible teaches that they are immediately in torment, in punishment for their sins. It says in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, that God keeps the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And that's a sad reality for anybody who dies today, who doesn't know Christ, who hasn't trusted in the covenant promises of Scripture. It says that in his torment and suffering, the rich man sees Abraham and Lazarus far off across this great chasm. And he shouts to Abraham. It's kind of surprising that he recognizes Abraham because they didn't have history books with pictures back then, so I don't know how he knew it was Abraham. Uh, maybe something he supposedly could have heard Abraham say, I don't know. Um, but it isn't surprising at all that he recognized Lazarus because he had to step over him every day when he went out his gate. He knew Lazarus. He pleads for Abraham to send Lazarus to put his finger in some water and touch his tongue to just give that much relief from his eternal suffering. Notice how he still sees Lazarus as a servant or a slave or beneath him. But Abraham says that Lazarus trusted in the Lord and he's getting the reward of his faith, the result of his faith. He's rich in the afterlife. You, rich man, trusted in your riches, lived for the pleasures of your wealth. You rejected God instead of trusting in God, and now you are getting what you deserve. But then Abraham makes an ominous pronouncement. He says, no one can ever cross the chasm. No one, after death, no one can go from hell to heaven or from heaven to hell. Your eternal destiny is locked in at the moment you die. That's what Abraham's saying. The book of Hebrews in chapter 9 says it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. There are no second chances. There is nowhere in Scripture that gives even a whiff of a hope that after death, somehow you can escape the penalty for your sins if you haven't trusted in Christ to pay that penalty for you in this life. We often use the word drop-dead date. Drop-dead date is when you have to drop a class or else there's going to be serious consequences. A drop-dead date is when you have to get a job done or you're going to face serious consequences in your job. A drop-dead date is when you have to pay a bill or you're going to face serious consequences. Death is the drop-dead date for your eternal destiny. That's what Abraham is teaching. Don't play Russian roulette with death. Don't wake up tomorrow and say, you know, I'm just going to take a chance that I'll live until Tuesday. I knew a man once who said that he was, his wife was a believer, and he said every time I talked to him about Christ, about salvation, he would say to me, you know, yeah, I know all that, preacher. You don't have to tell me that stuff. I know all that stuff. 
Matter of fact, I tell you what, I'm going to believe that before I die. He said, some guy's going to stick a gun in my face, and in that moment, I'm going to know it's time for me to, to believe in Jesus and go to heaven. And, you know, he would laugh about it. And I would just grieve me to the depths of my soul that he'd really lived that. He was playing Russian roulette with every day of his life. When you die, there are no more second chances. The third thing that this parable tells us is that death reveals whether or not you have trusted in the word of God. Your faith will be exposed or your lack of faith will be exposed. You see, there is a time to cross over from judgment and punishment to grace and eternal life. But it's in this life, in this world, before death comes. Jesus described that moment in John 5, verse 24. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Notice the tense of the verb. It's important. When you believe in the message of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and trust in him as your Lord and Savior, in that moment, you have eternal life. Not conditional life, eternal life. Life that cannot be taken away. He goes on to say, he does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Has passed from hell to heaven. The crossover has to happen in this life before death, is what Jesus was saying. And everyone's eternal destiny is determined by whether you believe that Jesus died for our sins and was raised for our justification and reconciliation with our holy God. In verse 27, the rich man gets the message, finally. He realizes to his despair that he has no hope in the afterlife. And so the last whisper of hope he has is that somehow he might be able to appeal to Abraham to send Lazarus, his slave again, send Lazarus back into this world, back from the dead, to go to his brothers to warn them so that they don't end up in hell like he is. Again, it's not a literal story. I doubt that anybody in hell cares about anybody on earth because in hell, all of common grace is removed. Your self-centered, prideful, self-glorying nature is lived out to its full. There's no more restraints on that wickedness. I doubt that you care for anybody when you're in hell. But anyway, allowing the story to play out to get Jesus' point across there is an implied complaint in his request, though, isn't there? He's implying, you know, if somebody had just warned me, I wouldn't be here. You know, even in hell, they won't take the blame for their own sin. Somebody failed me. Somebody didn't warn me. So Abraham, at least send Lazarus back to warn my brothers. And Abraham basically says, you, you and your brothers have had plenty of warnings. You had Moses and the prophets. That's a way of the first century Jewish people talking about the Old Testament. You had Genesis to Malachi. You had the whole Old Testament to warn you from the time that Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. They knew that the penalty of sin was death. And they knew that the only way to not pay the penalty of sin was for the blood of a perfect sacrifice to be offered in their behalf, for their sins to be atoned for by blood. The warning is from beginning to end in the Old Testament, 
and they did not listen to God's word. They rejected God's word. Let them listen to Moses and the prophets, he said. Timothy was saved by the Old Testament. That's what Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 15. He says to Timothy, how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Everything you need to know to avoid hell, to spend eternity in the blessings of heaven is given in the word of God. Let them go to Moses and the prophets, he says. But the rich man says that's not enough. Yeah, yeah, I had, I had the Old Testament, but that wasn't enough. If somebody were to come back from the dead, if somebody were to be resurrected from the dead, my brothers would believe, I would have believed if somebody came back from the dead. That's what he's saying. I can only imagine that Abraham would shake his head and laugh in pity. The other Lazarus we talked about, the brother of Mary and Martha, he was raised from the dead. Do you remember how the Pharisees responded to Lazarus being raised from the dead? They plotted to kill Jesus in response to Lazarus being raised from the dead. Do you know how the Pharisees and the scribes and the chief priests and the soldiers responded to Jesus being raised from the dead? They plotted together to come up with a lie that the apostles had stolen his body. You see, signs will never save anybody. Signs are meant to assure people who already believe, to confirm belief that already exists, but signs cannot produce belief. And if you have an unbelieving heart, there is not a sign in the entire universe that will convince you that Jesus Christ is your only savior and your only hope of eternal life in heaven. If God were, if we walked out of the building and God were to write in the sky in big, bold letters, Jesus Christ is Savior and Lord, the people, the unbelieving people in this community would explain it away as a meteorological anomaly. They do it with creation every day. They suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Signs will not save. You're saved by faith in the promise of God. I agree with William Shatner. I think everybody should fly 10 minutes into space and back if people will have that same kind of reaction. I'd pray, I'd encourage you to pray for William Shatner. He's 90 years old. I bet he's pretty close to death. Maybe not, I don't know. But I hope that this has been a life-changing experience for him. I pray that he will take the fragility and brevity of life deeply to heart and realize that he's not ready for the afterlife if he hasn't trusted in Jesus Christ. I don't know if he has or not. I can't speak to his heart. But that's the only hope he has. It's the only hope you have. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes about the assurance that believers have from believing, as he puts it, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised from the dead on the third day according to the scriptures. And then he talks about the effect of that assurance in that beautiful section at the end of chapter 15 where he quotes from the Old Testament. 
And he says, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm reminded of how in Randy Randy Alcorn's book on heaven, he said, if we don't know Jesus, we will fear death and its sting, and we should. Do you know Jesus? Death will reveal whether you do or not. Do you have your eternal destiny secured? Death will reveal that. It'll expose it. Are you trusting in God's promise, the gospel promise that the scriptures are all about? Death will reveal whether you do or not. As humorous as it is to think about Captain Kirk going to space at 90 years old, finally, after living his whole career off of being a guy in space, I hope that it'll be a reminder to all of us that life is short, life is fragile, and it could be over at any moment. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this picture of the afterlife that is given in the story that Jesus told, and it is, it is disturbing. It's disturbing to think of what eternity without Christ looks like. And even for those of us who have put our trust in Christ, I pray that this will be a reminder of our purpose here on earth. It's not to live for riches. It's not to live for status. It's not to live for glory here on earth. It's not to live for pleasure. Our purpose here is to serve this risen and living Savior and point others to him. And if there's anyone here this morning who doesn't know for sure what will happen to them when they die, I pray that they would not go another moment, let alone another day, week, month, or year without coming to Christ and putting their trust in him. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.